flood. Uh, we thank you that uh, you decided in eternity past to, uh, to humble yourself, uh, something that was not required, but you graciously chose to uh, live as a, as a human being uh, to provide a way of salvation for us. Uh, may we always stand in awe of your incarnation, of God come down to us, and, uh, and confidently, with great expectation, look forward to eternity, uh, where we will be in your presence forever. Uh, in joy and in singing, um, may that just be our, our greatest hope in this life. In your name, amen. Following a series of parables, <clears throat> Jesus and the Twelve entered the boat and headed towards the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was exhausted from teaching, went to the back of the boat, and fell asleep. During this time, a fierce storm arose. You're most of you familiar with the story. <clears throat> they were petrified. They go to Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing, which is a little ironic, thinking of why Jesus came, Jesus stood, faced a storm, and said, hush, be still. And instantly, the storm stopped. The twelve were stunned. They were scared of the storm, but they were very scared of the one who controlled the storm. In fact, they asked one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey? This morning, I would want to answer their question. The twelve are scratching their head. They look at a man that's sleeping, which suggests frailty, as we all have. We need sleep. And then they're staring at a man who's able to control nature, which suggests supernatural power. So this morning, I want to unveil what is known as the incarnation, so that you walk away from this service and simply are thinking, wow, this is the Redeemer whom I worship. Sadly, many Christians don't know what to do with theology. They don't think of it as very practical. It may be useful at a Christian college for answering some questions on a test or in a seminary or playing trivia. Two students at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville were talking to a third person, and they were complaining that the college or the seminary taught too much theology and not enough practical material. When I heard their complaint, it really broke my heart. My concern was not for the seminary, because it's on the right track. My concern were for the two students who failed to see, who failed to reflect upon the awe-inspiring creator that they have. Increased knowledge about God should be pondered to see its life-changing implication. Can you imagine being a history teacher at this school, and you're covering the topic of the Holocaust, and a student in the back raises his hand, and you say, yes, Bubba. Bubba goes, why do I need to know this? What does it have to do with me? It's not practical. In fact, it happened 75 years ago. I worry that we have not taught people how to reflect 
When I was young, I was stunned to think that Nazi Germany executed 10 million people, 6 million of them were Jews, and 4 million were gypsies, Poles, Soviets, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, political dissidents, and mentally ill. When it comes to this type of issue, you want people to ponder the nature of humanity and contemplate the depth of evil. A few years ago, I walked through the notorious concentration camp, <clears throat> Auschwitz, a camp that 66% of all millennials could not tell you what it is, a camp that slaughtered one million people. The knowledge about this camp and what went on inside of it should cause us to seek its pertinence. What does it mean about me? What does it say about fallen man? In his nature. In the same way, knowledge about God should never become mere facts that we place on the shelf that we entitle useless information. Knowledge about God should move the soul and cause us to ponder its implication, its relevance. I told you a few months ago about a, a little girl on a cruise liner she went to bed, fell asleep quickly, as little kids do, hopefully. And then she suddenly heard yelling and screaming outside. Woke her up, and she went outside to see what was going on. And apparently, they were in the midst of a terrific storm, and people were screaming that we're going to die, we're going to drown. And with that, she turned around, went back into her cabin, closed the door, got into bed, and went to sleep. The next morning, at breakfast, after the storm had passed, this little girl came to breakfast, and she went to one of the tables, and the adults were quite fascinated how she could maintain such tranquility in the midst of such a petrifying storm. She says, oh, that's easy. My dad's the captain. Why was the youngster at peace? Because her dad was in charge. Why did that bring peace to her mind? Because she knew him. You see, her knowledge of her dad was extremely practical. So this morning, I would like to examine the nature of Christ so that you know him in a deeper way. I would like to reveal the beauty and the majesty of the incarnation so that you, like that little girl, will have an awe of your father and a peace in your heart no matter what storms come your way. So, who is the one in the boat? Sleeping in the midst of a storm and then calming the wind and the waves. The answer is the incarnate God. Now, the word incarnation means in flesh. It refers to the eternal Son assuming a human nature. Put differently, the second person of the Trinity took upon himself full humanity. He became man. Interestingly, the Gospel of Mark starts when Jesus was an adult. Matthew and Luke take it back earlier and start when Jesus was an infant. The Gospel of John goes back even further in his eternal state. This is why John starts off this way. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jumping down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. 
This is the incarnation, God becoming man. And the Old Testament gives us a peek of this, a sneak preview. Some of you are familiar with Isaiah 9-6, remarkable passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. In other words, that child that's coming is God incarnate. Let's take a peek at the glory of the incarnation. Let's note eight, and they're in your notes. There are eight observations to ponder, to see the implication, the relevance, and how it affects us. Number one, and this is going to be a little tough, and I'll repeat it. The eternal son added a human nature, not a human person. I'm going to say that again. The eternal son added a human nature, not a human person person. Now you're going, what? I'll explain. The word person refers to a conscious subject. The word nature refers to the mix of attributes that make something what it is. Let me give you an example to help you. In the Trinity, there's one essence, one nature, but three persons, three conscious subjects, but one essence. In the incarnation, it's different. You have one person and two natures. Jesus is always a singular I, never a we in the incarnation. It's not two persons. It's one person with two natures. Now you say, what makes up a human nature? Good question. I'm going to simplify it. A body and a soul, or body and spirit. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? He made seven statements. The very last one is, Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He pillows his head and dies. His human spirit goes to be with the Father, and Joseph of Arimathea takes down his body and places it into the tomb. Three days later, his human spirit enters into, the, into his body, and you have a resurrected, glorified body. And that's exactly what will be happening to you if you're a believer. If you were to die right now, your body, boom, goes over. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord. They take your body, place it in forest lawn. At the end of the age, you return with Jesus, and your spirit goes back into your body, and your body rises up. That's why it refers to Jesus' resurrection as the firstborn. First born in first fruits because he's the number one that was resurrected and we will follow in the end. So human nature is body and soul. What's a divine nature? Since Jesus has two of these, human nature, what's a divine nature? Well, everything that you think of when you think of deity, all those attributes, holiness, eternality, self-existence, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, Righteousness, love, sovereignty, immutability, all of those that you think of in terms of attributes of deity is his divine nature. Now remember, the son's divine nature is eternal, but his human nature was created. His human nature came into union with his divine person. In other words, the eternal son 
assumed and personalized his human nature. So the incarnate God refers to the divine person who, theologians love this word, subsists, I'll just use the word exists, in two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. This means the eternal son, the word, lives in and through the divine and human nature. Number two, though united in one person, the two natures remain distinct, unchanged, and undiminished. This means the two natures never merge, never mingle, and they now mix to make a third nature. If you were to take substance A, normally speaking here on Earth, and you take substance B, and you put them together, it makes substance C. That is not the incarnation. Jesus is not a deified man. He's not a diminished God, and he's not half God and half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. Both natures maintain their own characteristics. Human nature always remains human, and the divine nature always remains divine. Put it in a different way, Jesus' human properties are like all others, humans. No different from you, with one exception, and that is he has no sin nature. His divine properties are identical to his heavenly Father. Let me give you some examples. Think of this as you've gone through Scripture before. In Jesus' human nature, he increased in wisdom, Luke chapter 2. Just like these little kids are growing in knowledge, you and I, bigger kids, growing in knowledge. But in Jesus' divine nature, he knows all things, John 16 and Colossians 1. In his human nature, he grew in stature and age, Luke 2. In his divine nature, he's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, John 8 and Hebrews 13. In his human nature, he couldn't carry the cross all the way to Golgotha because he was beaten so badly, Luke 23. And yet he maintains the entire universe, Colossians 1. When I taught at the school years and years and years ago, I taught the, the course on cults. I forgot all that I ever knew. But when we are coming to the Jehovah's Witness, I would role play Jehovah's Witness. I had the material knocked on the door, and I chose two students in class, one a guy and one a girl, and they would role play husband and wife. They would sit in front of me, and I'd have all this uh, <coughs> literature that obtained throughout the years. And we would talk about theology, and I would give my theology as a role-playing Jehovah's Witness. And they were to respond. And then I would ask them this question. Do you believe Jesus is God? And they say, yes. Assume God is all-knowing. Yes. Would you read out loud for me, I'd ask them, Matthew 24, 36. And they just go to their Bibles, yeah. And they read this. But of the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So role-playing a Jehovah's Witness, I said, well, obviously Jesus isn't God. He doesn't even know when he's going to return. Dead silence. In Jesus' human nature, his knowledge was limited. 
in his divine nature, it is unlimited. Number three, the eternal son assumed human flesh. He gave up the display of his heavenly glory, but he did not give up his divine attributes. Put simply, God cannot be, give up being God. God does not go on vacation. He doesn't retire. Jesus did not relinquish any of his divine attributes, but he did veil his glory. That's what makes the transfiguration, if you're familiar with that, fascinating. He takes Peter, James, and John, goes up a mountain, and don't take me literally here, but in a sense, pulls back his flesh and reveals a smidgen of his heavenly glory. This is why Peter in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1.16 says this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when we were with him on that holy mountain. That would have been a sight to see. The incarnate son, while walking on the paths of Judea, emptied himself, as we sang up here a few minutes ago, of the display of his majesty. Most of you are familiar with Philippians 2. Remarkable passage. Let me read it. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, let me pause there. Now, watch how he emptied himself. It tells you how he did it in the next verses. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is how he emptied himself, by assuming the frailties of humanity. Paul adds in another epistle, you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Though he created the universe while walking on this earth, he owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and that was taken away from him at the cross. Why? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, in the incarnation, the Son is able to live simultaneously a divine and human life because he retains a divine nature and a human nature. Number four, the incarnate son had the same limitation and frailties of other humans have. As a newborn child placed in the manger, he experienced all the limitations characteristic of infants. I was looking at the infant back there and the one way back in the corner watching the parents hold little ones right before I came up. Knowing what I was going to talk about, I thought, that was our Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to grasp that. When I watch them and they sort of, you know, Google and drool and do what little ones do, or the toddlers before the service starts to watch the little munchkins run around, you've got to be careful you don't step on them. 
uh, and they fall so frequently, especially the boys, you know, and you just go, oh, everybody just stops for a second. Is he going to let loose and crying? Or is he going to put up his head and go, hey. Um, <laughs> fortunately, they're so low to the ground that when they do fall, they just, ah, they don't go very far. That was our Lord. No different. He was put in, and I know we sing at Christmas time, away in the manger, but you realize it's a cow trough. What mother brags about putting their kid in a cow trough? It's sort of sad in a sense when you think of the humble way our Lord came. But as eternal son, he continued to maintain the universe. So think of Mary holding that little one. Jesus Christ in his human nature yet in his divine nature continued to maintain the universe. Colossians 1.17. You ask, how does this work? How can two natures work in one person? My answer, I don't know. I'm just one person with one nature. I have no clue on the mechanics of how that works. It fascinates me. But be aware of this. Jesus' human life was not made easier by his divine nature. He developed thirst. He became exhausted. He slept just as we saw in the boat. He was exhausted and he slept. He aged. Gray hair. He required food. He learned sequentially. He felt grief. He was surprised. You see, if you're omniscient, you're not surprised. Not, nothing catches you off guard. But in his human nature, he was astonished at times. He wept. He died. While studying the Passion Week at the school, I, I normally throughout my years would teach Old Testament to seventh graders, which was a kick in the pants, which means it was fun date myself with that expression. And then at the other extreme, I call them the, the two bookends. The 12th graders taught apologetics. And I love them both because the 7th graders are so weird. Uh, I, they always want to learn. They run to your class. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, 12th graders don't run to your class. You have to take their pulse to make sure they're alive. But you're able to go deep with the uh, 12th graders. Well, for a few years, I taught 8th graders. And that was the life of Christ. Every time we got to the Passion Week, a hand would go up. Yes, Rhoda. Mr. Richards. Yes, Rhoda. Did Jesus feel the pain when he was being whipped? Yes. 100% of that pain he felt. When Jesus walked on the sea, he did not walk on the sea to make his life easier. It was rather a sign to the disciples of who he was. In 1978, just a few years ago, I had a chance to study at the Institute of Holy Land Studies in Jerusalem. It's a school that's just outside the uh, walls of the old city of Jerusalem. I thoroughly enjoyed it. We would study uh, in the morning and then take uh, these old, old, old buses. They were old military buses and head out to see the land. And I remember one time we got off the bus, and it was hot. 
obviously in the summertime, and then they have Mediterranean climate just like we do, so it's identical to Southern California. And it was just hot. And so I was whining, not outwardly, you know, I had the Christian smile. But inwardly, I was complaining to myself, it's really hot. And then it suddenly dawned on me, duh, Marty, our Lord, 2,000 years ago, walked on the same dirty path. He didn't have a bus, and he didn't go back to an air-conditioned hotel. He experienced what I was experiencing. This means Jesus' trials and temptations are real. We're real while he was on this planet. Satan labored trying to entice Jesus to take the easier way. Whether it was in the wilderness of Judea or the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to bypass the cross. Take the easier way out. When Jesus prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He was in anguish at the thought of a holy one himself becoming the sin bearer. You see, holiness and sin repulse one another. And yet he was going to receive God's wrath for mankind's impurity, transgressions, and treason. His request illustrates his human desire, his desire to cling to holiness, his desire to cling to the intimacy with God. He knew he would face spiritual death, and he would have to face it alone. You're familiar with his statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me when he was on the cross? This is why Hebrews 15 and 16 are so meaningful and practical to me. Let me read the two verses. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. His heart beats next to my heart. Years ago, I read of a little boy walking along the sidewalk, and he happened to look up on a grass area, his lawn, and he saw a box and a little sign, puppies for sale. <laughs> well, who can pass that one up? So the little tyke ran over to the box and looked inside, and all these balls of fur. We're just jumping around. Gave the price. Takes out his wallet. Didn't have the money. Didn't come close to have the money to buy one of these little balls of fur. So he asked the owner, can I play with them? The owner said, sure, go ahead. So he sat down and took one by one out of the box, and it must have been an interesting sight to see all of these little balls of fur jumping all over this little guy. You could tell he was studying each one. Finally, he says, sir, I want to buy this one. I don't have all the money at this time, but if you allow me to make installment payments, I want this one. And the owner said, 
son, I don't think you want that particular puppy. And the boy goes, no, 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 I want this one. Uh, son, he has a physical disability. I think you want a different puppy. No, no, I want this one. Son, do you understand that that puppy, when he grows older, will limp the rest of his life? And with that, the little boy stood up and pulled up his pant leg, and there was a very significant brace. The little boy said, I don't walk very well either. I need to have a lot of love and care, and I know this one will require that same love and care. And the owner said, son, the dog is yours. Don't even worry about the payment. The boy understood the condition of the puppy. I can't shake my fists at God and say, you don't understand. He does. This knowledge about Christ to me is very practical. Who in this room has not or will not go through hardship? Christ understands. Number five. Jesus' human nature allowed him to experience what his divine nature could not. Many Christians hold a false assumption about God. They think God can do anything. In teaching the seventh graders the Old Testament, before we jumped into Genesis, we spent a couple days looking at the attributes of God. And one of my questions to the little critters was, can God do anything? Yes. I said, can God create a rock large enough he cannot lift? No. And I say, why? Because he can do everything. So I said, then he can't create one large enough. Dead silence. They said, is there an answer? I said, yes, I'll tell you tomorrow. Then they boo me because they want the answer immediately. I said, go home and ask your parents those two questions. Can God do anything? Which 99% of the parents would say, yes. Then ask them, well, can God grant a rock he cannot left? Oh, the responses. It's fascinating. My favorite is the dad, after being confused, goes, go ask your mother. <laughs> a lot of interesting responses. Solution, God is limited by his nature. God cannot sin, why? Because he's holy. God cannot die, why? Because he's eternal. God can't create a rock large enough. He can't live because he's omnipotent. Thus, the second person, the Trinity, had to assume a human nature in order to redeem man, in order to die for man. Through Christ's obedience, crucifixion, resurrection, man is restored and regenerated and reconciled with his creator. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Thus, the incarnation was necessary to pay for man's debt. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament didn't do a thing except point to the once for all perfect sacrifice. Let me put it this way. Only a perfect man can be an acceptable substitute, and only God can provide a sacrifice of infinite value. Since the incarnate God is the God-man, he's able to pay the eternal punishment in finite time because he became what he was not. He became fully human so he could fulfill his mission on redeeming man. 
In other words, the son with only a divine nature could not die. By assuming a human nature, he could. Number six. The incarnate son is subordinate to the father. I'm going to use a 50-cent word here that you don't normally use at dinner time. If you do, I want to be invited over to your place just to listen to your conversation. Ontologically. Now, ontologically means in his essence, in nature. The son is equal to the father, but functionally is submissive. I'll say that again. Ontologically, he is equal, but in his role, his function, he is subordinate. Let me give you an illustration. While teaching at this school for four decades, the principal was my boss. Is he superior, or was he superior in essence? The answer is no. Was he superior in his function? Yes. We had different roles. That's obvious. It's the same thing in marriage. Husband and wives are equal. Remember what Paul says in Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Ontologically, equal across the board. But there's differences in roles. What is obvious in Scripture is the fact that the triune God has one essence, but there's three persons, and those three persons have different roles. It doesn't make them inferior. It's just different responsibilities. Think of John 3.16. The Father takes the initiative. The Son voluntarily comes. And both the Father and the Son later send the Spirit. There's an ineffable intimacy in the three persons. The Father loves the Son, John 3. The Spirit glorifies the Son, John 16. And the Son loves and glorifies the Father, John 14. Unfortunately, cultists like to cherry-pick verses. Very dangerous to take out of context. And one of their favorites is to try to suggest that Jesus isn't God, and they will take a passage like John 14, 18, the last part of the verse. Jesus said this, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And they say, see? Jesus is not God. Jesus is not talking about his essence. He's talking about his function, his role as Messiah. In his incarnate state, he becomes man. He does the will of the Father. He lives a righteous life, and he endures the wrath of God. Number seven. Jesus lived his earthly life under the authority of the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. During Jesus' baptism, the Spirit came upon him. During Jesus' temptation, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. During Jesus' ministry, the Spirit of God empowered him to expel demons. Some biblical theologians believe that all of Jesus' miracles were simply the result of the Spirit of God working through Jesus. Sort of like Moses, who performed miracles through the power of God, Elijah did miracles through the power of the Spirit. They believe Jesus did the same thing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Other theologians believe that Jesus used his divine power to perform the miracle. 
I personally don't see it as an either or. The second, or excuse me, the eternal son took upon himself human nature and was spirit-led, no doubt about it. But this does not mean he could not or did not use his divine power. You say, why do you say that, Mark? Do you remember at the end of John, we studied John together? John 20, verse 30 says this, These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and believing you have life eternal. So the signs, the miracles were performed to convince people not that Jesus was a prophet like Moses or a prophet like Elijah. The miracles were performed so they realized that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king prophesied in the Old Testament, and the Son of God, one who's intimately connected with his Father. Remember, the eternal Son is able to act in and through both natures. As God, the eternal Son knew what the Father knew. As man, he knew what the Father revealed to him through the Spirit. Number eight, and the last one. The incarnation is an eternal state. When we go to be with him, we will see the incarnate Lord, the God-man. Do you remember in Acts 2, Peter says this, Jesus of Nazarene, a man, attested to you by God with miracles, you nailed to the cross, but God raised him up again and exalted him at the right hand of the Father. I had a cardiac arrest right now, and you go, yeah. I go to be with the Lord, and who do I see? The incarnate God at the right hand of the Father, the God-man. And when the Lord returns, he will return as the incarnate God, that you will see him physically. This means believers have an eternal mediator that we just sang about the God-man who brings God and man together because of the work that Christ did on the cross. Do you remember Paul's statement in Timothy? For there is one God, this is 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He is eternally the God-man. In short, Jesus is the one who knows my heart, the one who experienced my trials, the one who is my advocate. We started this morning by examining the twelve on a boat in the midst of a violent storm. They saw their leader sleeping, and they saw him calming the storm. That's confusing. They ask, who is this one who controls nature? Months later, the disciples go back on the boat, and a storm arises again. This time, Jesus is not in the boat. Jesus, though, walks towards them on the sea. And suddenly, as he steps into the boat, the storm stops immediately. This time, they don't inquire who it is. Rather, they drop to their knees, and they worship him. In other words, their question has been answered. Who is this one 
So they declare, you are certainly God's son. Centuries ago, there was a Persian king who wanted to walk among his people, but he wanted to veil his majesty, so he wore common clothing. He went all over his city, developing different friendships, but one gentleman he befriended more than anyone else. It was a guy who worked sort of a dingy job in a basement, and he kept the fires going for the saunas that was on the floor above him. And this Persian king befriended him, and they ate together and chatted together, laughed together, cried together, and this went on for some time. The king decided to reveal his identity to this laborer. And when he did, the laborer was shocked and silent, just sort of staring at the king, not knowing who was in his presence all this time. And the king said, is there anything that you'd like of me? Is there anything I could grant you? The laborer said, no, you've already given me everything. See, he'd given his friendship, his time, his love. And that is the story of the incarnation. Jesus came among us. He veiled his glory. He became our substitute on the cross, and he became our mediator now and forevermore. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for sympathizing with our weaknesses. What joy it begets to know of your providence. What peace it brings to know of your mercy. Indeed, the songwriter was correct when he penned. When peace like a river tendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. certainly appropriate to end our time together singing uh, it as well of uh, the great peace that we have with God ultimately looking forward to being in his presence forever uh, let's go ahead and stand together <laughs>